A reading from the letter of Paul to the Galatians. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If, however, you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Live by the Spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For what the flesh desires is opposed to the Spirit, and what the Spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not subject to the law. Now the works of the flesh are obvious, fornication, impurity, licentiousness, adultery, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I am warning you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. The word of the Lord. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. It's a little toasty in here. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Father Mike Marcangelo. My wife and I, uh, Mandy, who you've probably seen over the last couple months in the back worshiping with you. We've, we've lived in the Portland area for about a year and a half, serving at a church in Newburgh called Church of the Vine. It's, it's a pleasure to be here and to, to serve for Father Stephen. I, I sincerely apologize for the lack of man bun. It's just a shame. Um, so I, I recently realized that I haven't been a very good Anglican for the last 15 years or so because I haven't read C.S. Lewis since late high school. I know. Um, and, and I wanted to amend this. And so I started jumping back into the Chronicles of Narnia with my wife and um, a couple other books and, and have also read a biography called The Narnian by a guy named Alan, Alan Jacobs, which is a really fantastic book. And uh, I, I bring this up to you because there's one particular anecdote from Lewis's life that um, Jacobs brings up in the Narnian that I've spent some time thinking about lately, especially as it relates to freedom in Paul, a concept that I've honestly struggled with in times, at times to, to fully grasp what exactly Paul means by freedom in Christ. In, in uh, writing the Chronicles of Narnia, um, you know, these, these seven vastly influential children's stories that inspired people like J.K. Rowling today, but are just drenched in incredible Christian allegory and depth and timelessness. Lewis was, was drawing from two major areas of expertise. He's drawing from his Christian apologetics and theological kind of amateur theologian background and weaving this together with 
his extensive knowledge of philosophy and mythology and Renaissance literature. And of course, fans developed a love for his work because the, the books were so imaginative and really captured um, the imaginations of children, but also adults. And, um, and what began to, to happen was people started to develop theories for how Lewis could, um, could craft such excellent stories. And their theories usually went along similar lines of he, he must have really charted out a very particular course and planned this allegory in a, in a particular way that made these stories work. Um, there's, a, there's a famous book by a guy named Michael Ward called Planet Narnia, and he, he goes as far to suggest that Lewis planned each of these stories out years in advance and aligned them with um, medieval astrological understandings of, of planets. And uh, so, for example, themes consistent with medieval literature on Jupiter are found in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and Mars for Prince Caspian, and the list goes on. It's a, 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 a theory that has some basis, but what's interesting is that during Lewis's life, he was familiarized with these theories, and he rebutted them strongly. And this is where I want to point us right now. He calls this theorizing um, and this approach to his stories the expository demon. They expect a certain kind of rigid method and almost science, and this is what he has to say about it. Some people seem to think that I began writing these stories by asking myself how I could say something about Christianity to children. Then I fixed on the fairy tale as an instrument almost a kind of tool of influence. Then I collected information about child psychology and decided what age group I'd write for. Then I drew up a list of basic Christian truths and hammered out allegories to embody them. This systematic plan that people suspected he calls pure moonshine. I couldn't write that way at all, he says. Jacobs, his biographer, says that he couldn't write this way because he knows it would have been a dreadful mistake, a giving over of his imaginative life to the expository demon. Jacobs goes on to say, what he has to do instead is trust the images that come into his mind, or more accurately, trust that he is being formed as a Christian in such a way that the images that come to his mind are authentic ones ones that lie at or at least near the center of his soul. Or in Lewis's words, it's better not to ask questions at all about the allegory or try to exposit these beautiful stories. Let the pictures tell you their own moral, he says, for the moral inherent in them will rise from whatever spiritual roots you have succeeded in striking during the whole course of your life. This is where I begin to see the connection with Galatians and Paul's epistles and all of his writing on freedom. Lewis is resisting a slavery to method, a sort of law, a science that would kill the imaginative spirit of his storytelling. There is absolutely a freedom in his approach. For example, he says, everything began with images, a fawn carrying an umbrella, a queen on a sledge, a magnificent lion, at first, there wasn't even anything Christian about them. And this line's a good one. 
that element just pushed itself out of its own accord. It's not that his stories find their power because he simply allows his imagination to run wild. And it's also, on the other hand, not because he's bound to this very rigid law of methodology on how he's going to write allegory. Instead, he is, in Paul's words, slaved to Christ, enslaved to Christ, being bound to Christ and close to Christ and a man of Christian virtue makes this virtuous storytelling just emerge out of him. And this, I think, helps me understand Paul a little bit on freedom. I've, I've had trouble, I think, um, understanding Paul's words on freedom because it seems strange that true, true human freedom is enslavement to Christ. This isn't new news to us, of course, as Christians. In baptism, after being united with Christ through the waters, being freed from sin and death, there's this ancient practice of the preach, the priest making the sign of the cross in holy oil upon the new baptized heads and saying, you are marked as Christ's own forever. We are enslaved and bound to Christ at the initiation of our faith. But the metaphor of freedom and enslavement to Christ, I think still is confounding today. Maybe it's because of how Paul talks about freedom in this passage in particular. In one moment he says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And then the next moment he says, actually be slaves. He echoes this language of be slaves throughout his letters, slaves of righteousness, slaves of God, slaves of Christ, and later in Galatians 5, slaves to one another. But isn't this a contradiction? How can these two commandments to be free, to not be under a yoke of slavery and also to be enslaved, how can they exist alongside of one another? At times I've wondered if Paul is just kind of confused himself. I'm sure some other folks have wondered the same. Or maybe he's a kind of a early Don Draper. He's really good at twisting uh, stories and spinning things and convincing people that being free is uh, the way of the Christian life, but really behind that veneer of freedom is something much darker. Whatever the case might be, what is true is that the way Paul talks about freedom doesn't align with the dominant cultural definitions of freedom that you and I interact with on a daily basis. And I think I'd wager to say shape us and form us a lot, sometimes more than, than the Christian life and walking with Christ. These, some of these definitions that we may be familiar with, doing what we want, choosing what we want, not needing to do what we're told, breaking the normative rules, could give sociological examples, and usually the, the examples the church tends to give at this point in time are examples of human sexuality and freedom. And doing all these things, living freely without feeling guilt or judgment, what truly matters is the pursuit of happiness, a concept which is embedded in our country's founding documents and in our culture deeply. Reinhold Niebuhr, the public theologian, great public theologian from the 20th century, 
calls this the easy conscience of modern people. I like this phrase, the easy conscience of modern people, because I think it really captures a major piece of our cultural catechesis into freedom. Seeking an easy conscience, a sort of internal peace. Another catchword is authenticity. I'm sure we've heard many of these words thrown around. For most people in our country and around us, freedom, by freedom we mean that we can vote in elections from time to time and do whatever we want in our private lives. Then everything should kind of just sort itself out after that. And I think Paul would say that this dominant understanding of American freedom, this dominant American understanding of freedom is a, a muddled mess of personal boundlessness and lawlessness. I don't think it's that Paul is confused when he talks about freedom. I think it's that we're confused. He understands it much better than we do. And we can see this when we begin to place his understanding of freedom under a microscope. Returning to C.S. Lewis for just a moment, for him, freedom and flourishing is displayed in profound Christian allegory, not due to authenticity to self, but freedom is found in authenticity to Christ, slavery to Christ, being bound to depths of faith. And out of that slavery comes these stories of freedom. Humans simply can't be free without being bound to something. N.T. Wright has a really helpful example here um, when he refers to us driving cars to kind of contextualize it for us this morning. When I, when I leave here and head home, I'll go north and hop on Lombard Street. And if I'm feeling like I want to be particularly authentic to a rebellious spirit that I'm feeling, then maybe I'll decide to drive on the left side of the road and express my freedom that way. In a sense, I am completely free to do this. But soon enough, my expression of freedom would infringe on some other people's freedoms as the cars come rocketing my direction. And it might infringe on their windshields and bumpers as well. This is the automotive example of that well-known saying that the freedom of your fist stops where the freedom of my nose begins. In this scenario, we begin to see and imagine that no matter how free we think we are and whatever we might think freedom means, humanity is always bound together by laws that enable us to live together, be they traffic laws, economic laws, HR laws, federal or otherwise. Authenticity, or being true to ourselves, or having and seeking an easy conscience, this doesn't get us very far. This isn't true freedom. This is a delusion. As Bob Dylan famously sang, you've got to serve somebody. It may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you've got to serve somebody. Paul understands this, that we have to serve somebody. And not only does he understand this, he goes a step further in his epistles and especially his letter to the Galatians. In the living God, Jesus Christ, Paul has encountered the one who fulfills all human laws, the one who brings all of these laws to perfection, who doesn't upend them but completes them. Yes, we've got to serve somebody, and Paul calls us to serve Christ. We, the church, are slave to the crucified, risen, and ascended Christ, the fulfillment and perfection of the law, 
There is no other way to be truly free. We must be bound to someone. And he is the one in whom we could find true freedom. The way we serve him and live out this freedom is, as, the, as Paul says in Galatians 5, we become slaves to one another. This is the fulfillment of the law through Christ is summed up in the great commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Loving our neighbors as ourselves is the work of the Spirit. And for the most of today's Galatians reading, the rest of the reading, Paul speaks of living by the Spirit, bearing the fruits of this Spirit as opposed to the works of, flesh, of the flesh. To use his words, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Hearing those words read over us reminds us maybe of the Spirit-filled church in Acts. It's a picture of the good life, of the flourishing life, of true freedom. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we see that painted in this picture. Christians, as people bound to Christ, we will find perfect joy and freedom. We will find flourishing life when we are bound to God and bound to others. This good life, this spirit-filled life, flows out of our deep roots in Christ. And I think it's very appropriate that Paul uses the imagery of the fruit of the Spirit. Chrysostom agrees. He says, notice it's not the work of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit is bound to the tree, enslaved to the tree in a sense. It can only grow and flourish this way. And to draw again from Lewis's words that I pointed to at the beginning of this sermon. The depths of being bound to Christ and flourishing in Christ, when we're with him, when we're bound to him, that's when this freedom is pushed out of us on its own accord. So, sisters and brothers, be free. You've got to serve somebody. There is no boundless freedom. This is a delusion that collapses under close examination. You will know true freedom, true flourishing, a spirit-filled life when you are bound to Christ and bound to one another, and there will be fruit. As we approach the table, know that there's no better way to be bound to Christ. In the gospel reading this morning, we see that slavery to Christ is never a mandate from on high. It is always an invitation into the baptismal life, into the Eucharistic life. Our Lord says, follow me. He doesn't pretend that this life is easy. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Yet in following him, we find true freedom. Freedom from sin and death. Freedom to new life, flourishing human community in the spirit. And this is how our Lord can also say about freedom and slavery to him that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.